beautiful Sabbath to all of you. Certainly is lovely. It's supposed to be up in the high 50s and 60s most of the rest of the week after it gets up there in a day or two. And clear skies. And I love the sunshine. We have Bible study this coming Wednesday evening at 7 at the beginning of the 12th month, which means next month. After this one is uh, the first month, and Passover is coming. But even before that, we have uh, Purim coming up a couple of weeks. So after Bible study Wednesday evening, uh, we can have a little meeting with some of those who might want to be involved in preparing for Purim. Uh, we sent out a, a note by text, and most of you received that, but there are a few that don't text, so a text doesn't always do it, but uh, I think those who would be involved in preparations all received it, so we'll, this is probably a short meeting to do a little planning uh, for those two days. I suppose you're watching the news. Ukraine is being taken over by the Russians. I don't know exactly what NATO and the United States reaction is going to be. So far, we've pretty well held off, and uh, that distresses some of our allies. But uh, this thing is going to get bigger and bigger, obviously. A uh, couple of things have happened and are about to happen. Uh, if you're familiar with the SWIFT system, uh, it is the mechanism whereby all international trade has always been settled since it was established. So if Turkey wants to sell something to China, uh, they have to go through SWIFT, and instead of putting their money, well, they put their money in, but it has to be settled in U.S. dollars. So all international transactions have been settled in U.S. dollars. That has been one of the keys that has allowed us to uh, remain supreme with the reserve currency of the world because everybody has had to have dollars to trade with anybody. Now the Russians and the Chinese and others have uh, been going around that system here lately and trying to settle things between themselves with their own currencies. This always upsets um, people who are in positions of power behind the scenes. And what we have done in the past when anyone who has tried to avoid this system is bomb them into eternity, uh, like Libya, like Iraq, uh, and others. And we have done things to them to make them stay in. Now, we are threatening to remove Russia from that system, trying to put a crimp in their trading. Well, they've already found some ways around it, but it will still cripple them greatly, and I'm sure they are not going to be very happy with it, uh, because they're going to have to quickly scurry to make agreements otherwise and start trading in Lira and pesos and whatever else is out there, and that is going to be a total confusion in the world economic system, because it's been working pretty well up to now, but it will be a real confusion 
once this breaks apart. And of course, the American sovereignty over the world currencies will end because people will start trading with Russia and other nations in their own currencies and we can no longer put sanctions on people. The key to all these sanctions you've heard about was financial. Uh, they have to go through the system, the SWIFT system, in order to trade and we would threaten to block them outside it and not approve their trades. And that's how the sanctions worked. But now they're not going to work. Uh, Russia is going to start cutting off oil and gas supplies and already have to some degree to Europe, which they depend upon. And now Putin just announced that they're going to uh, not export um, nitrogen. I can't say the second word, nitrogen. The main fertilizer everybody uses. Uh, and we use a lot of it. Russia's a supplies two-thirds of the world's supply of the fertilizers normally used to grow crops, and in this country included. And he has shut off all exports of that fertilizer until April 2nd. Well, if he doesn't extend it, and if they start shipping it around April 2nd, it'll get here too late for spring planting. And without fertilizer, our soil is so depleted that it won't grow much of anything without it. So it is going to help bring famine upon us. So Russia has some moves <laughs> that are pretty powerful, as well as their military. So Germany and Italy just agreed they were the only holdouts, apparently, to cut off the Swiss system from Russia. Now, this will hurt some companies because they can't trade with Russia without using their own uh, monetary instruments as well. So the plot thickens uh, is what this all amounts to. And it's giving Russia more and more reasons to attack us. Uh, remember there in Isaiah it says it's not that he doesn't believe it's in his heart to cut off nations, but he will cut off nations, not a few. And if that's speaking of Putin, which I think it is probably, uh, he doesn't consider himself a warmonger. He considers himself a Christian, or at least he says that. Uh, who knows what all he is behind the scenes as a former KGB member and officer. But uh, nonetheless, his public persona is kinder than that. But the book of Isaiah says he's going to cut off nations, not a few anyway, if he is indeed the head of the northern army, which it appears to be the case. So we shall see where this all leads, but uh, we have been pushing at Russia over Ukraine. Pushing, 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 trying to get them to go to war. Because the COVID thing is kind of dying out, and a lot of restrictions are being removed. They need something new. And in the past, we've always gone to war. That gives us something to have people to talk about and to worry about. So they're doing their best to start a war and are succeeding. And that's U.S. politicians who are selling out our nation, as Jeremiah 50 and 51 clearly show. We'll shake the hand of our enemies and give ourselves over to them. So... 
We've also got the truckers' convoy that's gearing up, and where that'll lead, no one knows, but uh, Canada has fallen and is now straight-out communistic, and we are not far behind. Now, we're going to see some of this in the book of Zechariah today. If you'll recall from last week in chapter 8, God talks about these fasts that we've been doing, and we did one in January, uh, the fasts of the months, and he says we should have been keeping them uh, with him in mind more instead of ourselves, and uh, they were about the fall of Jerusalem, the siege and fall of Jerusalem, uh, the desecration of the temple, the killing of Gedaliah, and the Jews established those, but God put them in the Bible, and we are to live by every word of God, and since they are in his word, then we are constrained to keep them regardless of what the Jews do or do not do. Uh, the church overlooked those fasts for years, but they have everything to do with the church today. We had a siege against the church from the state of California, from our own ministry, from within, uh, who shook hands with the world, as Jeremiah 50 says. It's always to the church first and later to the nation. And we saw our headquarters fall in Pasadena. We saw us lose all the campuses. We saw a siege against the church, the temple, and how it came apart and went back into the captivity of Babylon for the most part. And so many, many have died or been taken captive spiritually, just like it's starting to happen to our nation. And I believe that Herbert Armstrong was killed and Hosea and Isaiah and other places indicate that also the leader of the nation will be killed. Maybe the vice president and vice president may indicate in Hosea. So these things are now starting to happen. And last week we saw that those fasts that we have been doing over the condition of the church are going to be turned into feasts of joy and God is going to begin to bless those, that 10%, who through Laodiceanism have repented and turned to him and become faithful and zealous, he is going to bring them together to build a temple, uh, the, the latter temple, the last one before Christ returns, uh, spiritually and probably physically. I'm 99% sure of the physical part as well. So these things are coming, and... At the end of chapter 8 last week, it showed that there will be those who take hold of those spiritual Jews, true members of the church of God here at the end, and say, we'll go with you. We're coming. And that fits all the prophecies that indicate that 10%, a remnant, will show up and take hold of those where God has begun to do his signs and wonders and miracles. And those are going to be the key things that help show them where Christ is working. And, of course, the beast and the false prophet are going to arise and do signs and wonders, and the world is going to turn to them, the whole world. But only 10% of those who were in the church are going to show up in Zion, the area of the real Jerusalem, 
to do God's work. So he says that at the end of chapter 8, and then we have a change in chapter 9 that might be a little hard to understand, uh, but if we understand some things about history, it might put it in better perspective for us. Chapter 9, he changes from, I'm going to bless you and people are going to want to come to you, speaking of the remnant of his church. Remember, the context here has not changed from Haggai in the first chapters of Zechariah. We're still talking about the same remnant people, the ones who have been keeping his fast, who are still keeping them, the ones that he's working with to do the things he says in Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6. So he continues that and how he will begin to bless them. And if you bear that in mind, it helps explain chapter 9, the burden. So it changes from I'll bless you and people will want to come to you to a burden on somebody here. A burden is a proclamation of doom, of negativity, of severe trouble. All through the Bible, when it says the burden of, it's followed by a list of terrible things that are about to happen to whoever was addressed as having the burden dumped on them. So this is the burden of the word of the eternal. So this is God who's pronouncing trouble on someone. Let's establish that at the beginning. Now understand that we, as a church, are going to have enemies already do to some degree, and some that we don't even yet realize. We have enemies within our own gates, of course, as Israel always did, and as the church always did. I remember Paul talking about those who would destroy him, who were the enemies of the church, and they were sitting there, some of them even in the congregation, and he warned the people about them. Alexander the silversmith, for one, just comes to mind. But we have enemies around us here that you are not at all aware of, probably. But we began to develop this land, planning and zoning in Kingman, or, Cat, or uh, County Seat, called us in and they wanted to talk to us about what they would or would not allow us to do. And the head of planning and zoning department, when we went in there, and there were five or six of us, uh, at the time, uh, who went in in that first meeting, and the first thing she said was, we understand that you're beginning a cult up there. She said someone is beginning a cult up there. Of course, she knew exactly who it was. We were sitting right in front of her. And then she gave a very sarcastic laugh and says, but that's okay with us, ha, ha, ha. And then they came down on us, with all four feet to try to make us do exactly what they wanted and not allow us really to even survive and exist. They wanted to get rid of us. Now they tried, the state of Arizona tried to get rid of the Pligs over here in 1953 in what they call the Short Creek Massacre. And they took a lot of people captive. Uh, they killed some people. And as I recall hearing the story, even the governor of Arizona finally had to uh, resign because of the pressure that was brought. So this area has been a pain for the Mojave County 
administrators as well as the state of Arizona uh, throughout history, <laughs> if you will. And when they saw another religion coming in here that was different, it wasn't Mormon, it wasn't Methodist, it wasn't Church of Christ, they didn't like it. And they tried to stop us from the get-go. And we went round and round and round with them. They finally backed off. And you don't see it. We, we've got people around us right now building houses just as fast as you can imagine. And you don't see uh, all those administrators from Kingman up here making them follow uh, the planning and zoning procedures. They're just doing whatever they want to do. We're supposed to not have more than one house per acre. And they're putting up dwellings, several of them, on an acre. So, Kingman doesn't care about them. But they cared about us. And they still do. So, we have enemies, uh, seen and unseen. And understand that the context here is still talking about those who will obey God and who will come to the original promised land, Zion and the original Jerusalem, to do God's work. Uh, there are many prophecies about uh, the Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites who would be around God's people, and God pronounces burdens and troubles to come on them uh, because they are in the area where God's people will gather. So he has to deal with them. And if he is going to build something in the original promised land, which is in this area, he's going to have to deal with those people, and they're going to have to be out of the way, and we have to have the freedom to do what needs to be done. Right now, the federal government, the BLM, controls some of the areas that we need to use. And so do the Mormons. But they are allied very closely with the federal government and the CIA, and uh, they are, for the most part, at the top, Masonic as well. Most of their leaders are 33rd degree Masons, uh, which tells you who's behind the scenes that they're working with. So this burden comes where? In the land of Hadrach, Hadrach and Damascus, shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the eternal. Well, that's a, kind of a poor translation of this. I looked it up uh, in several other translations. And the essence of this, and I think the context will show it, is that God says he will have his eye on the peoples here that he's putting this burden on, and that they will turn their eyes to him in fear. You read this in the King James, and it sounds like they'll be turning to God. No, he just said, this is a burden to these people. He will have his eye on them, and that they will be afraid. The other translations bring that out a whole lot better than this shows. I guess I should have brought them to read to you. But that's the essence of it. Now let's go on down and you'll see that that fits. And Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyre and Zidon, though it was very wise, very crafty, very smart, and Tyre did build herself a stronghold. 
and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Now, Tyre represents an ancient city, which is very wealthy, and we have modern Tyre somewhere. I suspected perhaps New York uh, is the primary type of ancient Tyre, but it could be that it's out here as well. Uh, the Mormons have heaped up gold and vaults beyond your imagination from things that they have collected from mines and different places they found here in mostly southern Utah and around in these areas. They are one of the richest peoples on the face of the earth. And their corporation with its big businesses is one of the biggest corporations on earth. Well, the Mormons wield a great deal of power. Behold, the Eternal will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. So this is a burden, and here he says that these places named here are going to be devoured with fire, destroyed. Ashkelon shall see it and fear, Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now he's beginning to draw it down. The cities he's named up here, most of them, were Philistine cities. So he names their cities, and then he names Philistia, or the Philistines. Now, who is that today? You go into the Bible dictionaries and commentaries, <coughs> and they can't really even define who the ancient Philistines were. They have some ruins in the Middle East that they say were Philistines, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But Israel was over here, as we have learned. And the Philistia, Philistia, or the Philistines, were traditional enemies of Israel and of Jerusalem when they were here. So, it's very likely that we can draw what he's saying here in chapter 9 down to this local area, for the most part. Now, you see a lot of blonde, blue-eyed, red-headed Mormons. They're not Israelite, for the most part. They claim to be. But Lot was in the family of Abraham, as you remember. So, they were Shemites, or Semitic, or kin of Abraham. And so, blonde hair, blue eyes, redheads should not come as any surprise if we have Ammon and Moab around us. They would be that way. Uh, Edom was from Esau, and he was very red-headed and very hairy. Uh, so Esau is mentioned, and Edom, as one of the primary enemies of the church and of Israel, the nation, in the end time. That's what the book of Obadiah is all about, is how the Edomites will help destroy and then exalt over the demise of Jacob. And we are the leaders of Jacob, God having changed the firstborn from Reuben to Ephraim. Read Jeremiah 31 and you will see that. 
So this nation of Ephraim is the one that primarily is referred to by the book of Hosea, uh, Jeremiah, and some of the other prophecies. But Philistia is here as well. Let's understand, let's see, it says Tyrus will be devoured with fire and cast into the sea. Did I read that or is it still ahead of us? Verse 7, I will take away his blood out of his mouth, speaking of the Philistines here, and his abominations from between his teeth. So the Philistines are a mean and ordinary people who devour others. And they tried to devour Israel in the past. And of course David stood up against their giant, Goliath, and there were giants here in this area at the time, and they found skeletons of giants. I know someone who found a huge skull right here in this area with a double row of teeth. And those things are spoken of. Uh, and they've been found across the nation, actually, in different places. Uh, the Mormons and the Smithsonian Institute have taken those things and put them in the deepest basements they have. They don't want it known that Israel used to be here. But they know it. Believe me, they know it. But he that remains, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. The Jebusites originally called the beginning of the city of Jerusalem Jebu, uh, later came to be Jerusalem. Uh, but the Jebusites were as well enemies that David fought and conquered. So this is talking about uh, the people around about Israel, spiritual Israel, and its remnant that comes. Okay? But that subject has not changed. And I will encamp about my house because of the army. So all these people are going to be enemies of the people who come. You go to Micah 5, and it says seven or eight principal men will go out and defeat the Assyrian who comes into our land. Isaiah 7 and 8 talk about the Assyrian coming into Emmanuel's land. That's the promised land. They're coming here. He also says in Isaiah 41, I think it's verse 15, that he will make us, speaking of the remnant, a sharp threshing instrument to devour people. And he says the same thing in Micah 4. I'll make you a sharp threshing machine. Now, how does that fit? Well, I think it's quite easy. You go to Revelation 11, and it talks about that two witnesses will go out and perform plagues wherever they want. It says there in Isaiah 41 and Micah 4, compositely, that they will knock down the mountains and the hills. Big governments, little governments, cannot stand before the power of God that he gives those new men. They won't be able to. So this fits that. Uh, God will encamp about his house. Now, doesn't Christ tell us in Zechariah 2 that he will come and dwell among us and be a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat, he says in Isaiah 6, I believe it is. 
I'll encamp about my house because of the army. Now, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. So, he's telling us in chapter 8, he's going to turn this confusion and spewing that he has done to us around and begin to truly bless us. So here he says, armies will come against us. He'll encamp about us and take care of it. And he's even going to give power to his people to overcome the nations of the world to a certain degree. So he tells us to rejoice. He's going to be here to take care of us. And then he says, Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now we know that historically Christ came into Jerusalem doing that very thing. But he was not there to conquer and to put down the nations at the time, was he? Now when you read about his so-called second return. <clears throat> Actually, it's beyond that. He only comes as his second coming as the world and even we sometimes have thought of it. He's only coming to blow the trumpet and the saints rise to meet him in the air. He's not coming to fight at that time. He's taking them up to be married before the throne of God on, uh, on the sea of glass. There they'll have their honeymoon and then he'll come back and bring them with him upon a horse, a white horse, covered in blood, and his vesture covered with blood. So it's really what we might call his third coming, that he's coming to fight and to put down the nations and the resistance that is still here. So, how does this fit the prophecy that we're talking about in the context we have here? Is this talking about him coming back later? No, it's talking about him coming in a humble and meek manner to do what? To protect, to help, to bless. So it depicts him coming to the remnant of the church in a kindly, loving, blessing way and to protect us from the enemies around us. He'll encamp among us as it says here, and back in Zechariah 2. So, he says he'll come and dwell with us. And as I've said before, I don't know whether we would see him, uh, whether he is just there directly, though, not just by his spirit, but there directly seems to be the indication. Come and dwell with. And how much we would see of him, I do not know, maybe nothing. But he might reveal himself partially or somewhat, as he did the original apostles. Even after he left, he came back and visited them and went and taught Paul for three and a half years. So he says, you won't see much of me hereafter, implying we would see some of him. So what that means here at the end, I don't know, and frankly, it doesn't matter. As long as he's here and he's keeping our enemies away and not letting them destroy us, and then turning us into sharp dressing instruments to go out and pronounce plagues on the world, we're taken care of. That's all that really matters there. So he is going to come 
in a more benign way, even as he did when he came to walk the earth uh, for 33 and a half years. He'll be back here walking it in and among us in Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem. We'll see before we get through this book that Jerusalem is going to be established again in her own place. The one in the Middle East is not her place. Never has been. So, who is he bringing salvation to? 144,000. Those who still are alive and remain and will be doing his end time work. And he's going to come lowly or meekly and humbly, not as a king of kings and lord of lords. He, he wears lots of hats, has lots of titles. He's the lord of hosts. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And we look to him as being that, and he'll rule the earth with a rod of iron. At the same time, he's listed to us as a brother, a redeemer, a savior, a friend. So he has all those hats, plus many, many more, that you can find in the scriptures. And in this case, he will be wearing the hat of meekness and kindness and blessing toward those who are obedient and a sword against those who are not. So he'll have several hats on the rack when he gets here. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So once he does intervene with his remnant people, and come and dwell with, from that time forward he will never leave them or leave them unattended or untaken care of. Now, he may go back and forth to his father's throne innumerable times, who knows? But his dwelling will be with those of us whom he chooses to use. And I hope we're among them. But eventually he's going to rule all the way across. Now, when he mentions the sea... Let's, let's understand history a little bit here. You know where the Mediterranean Sea is, don't you? Yeah. Did you ever break that word down? Mediterranean. Middle terrain. The Mediterranean Sea is not terrain. It is water. Mediterranean means the middle terrain that is between the waters. Now, it speaks of the original Jerusalem as being situated between the former and hinder seas. You look at that Jerusalem in the Middle East, and there's no place for a sea anywhere around it. Dead Sea's off to the southeast. But nothing around the city where they could bring fish in to sell in the city, which Nehemiah said they were doing. They didn't have refrigerator trucks then, and if they brought fish from um, that sea of Galilee or wherever, from the, from the coast even, uh, it would have been rotted the time they got it to where that Jerusalem is. 
that Jerusalem was built by the Arabs. It's a matter of history, and they brag about it and say that they did. But the Mediterranean has to be middle terrain between bodies of water. Now, the scientists today recognize that the great basin out here, which they made into a national park, was once covered with water. And east of here, out in uh, kind of eastern Utah, was another tongue of sea that came up. And even up at Bryce Canyon, for a place I know of, they have a big plaque on a set up there with a map on it, and it shows the sea going up from the Gulf of California all up through the basin, Great Basin of Nevada, all the way up through Canada to the North Pole. They show another sea east of here going all the way up through Canada as well. And that makes, between those two seas, the Mediterranean, the middle terrain or land between the seas. They dug up a Phoenician ship by the Salton Sea in California under the sand. How did it get there? Well, it obviously floated there and sunk and got covered up. So we today are sitting between two seas. We're in the middle terrain or middle land between the seas. And Jerusalem itself has the same configuration, a small piece of land between the former and hinder sea. And the real Jerusalem, the site of it, has that, you've seen it, on either side. And one of them is very, very shallow and fits Ezekiel's description of walking out ankle deep, knee deep, hip deep, and finally having to swim way on out there. And if you look at that, that's exactly the way it is. Dry most of the time now. But I've seen the one on the other side have water a mile across even since we've been here. So when he's talking about these peoples, he's talking in terms of the latter days and his remnant that he's going to call to the original promised land and the enemies about them. Now, there may have been Philistines in the Middle East at some point, but Israel was not originally there. Remember Deuteronomy 28, last few verses where he says, if you don't repent, that's the blessings and cursings chapter, if you don't repent, I will take you into captivity by sea. Had they been in that Jerusalem, it would have been very easy to just simply march them into Egypt. Much simpler than load them all on a bunch of boats and haul them up the estuary. So taking them into captivity by sea is when he removed ancient Israel from this promised land, shipped them to North Africa and the Middle East in the area around what we call now the Mediterranean Sea. And from there, after their captivity was loosed, they were taken up into that Babylon over there. And then when they were removed from that, 70 years plus later, they came back over here and built the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, what's his name? Not Herodias. Uh, Tiberius. 
claimed to have destroyed Jerusalem and taken it down to the foundation so that no one could tell that a city had ever been there. And that's pretty much the way the original site of Jerusalem is today. And we know from many scriptures in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and maybe even Isaiah that Jerusalem would be desolate, no man living there for many generations. That one in the Middle East has never been that way. But this one over here has for many generations. And we're supposed to rebuild it. You know, Daniel is there for a purpose. Uh, the book of Daniel. And it says there will be 70 weeks in the building of Jerusalem, and then it will be defiled by the beast and the false prophet. So it's an end-time prophecy, and it has to, if it's not there and hasn't been for generations, it's got to be built. Unless something really drastic happens, that one in the Middle East already has walls. Has the old city, has the newer city around it. Doesn't have to be built. It's already there. The one he's talking about is one that's gone. It's not there anymore that has to be built in 70 weeks. That's not a real long period of time in terms of construction. But it will be done. So Christ is coming in a meek and humble way as our friend, as our brother, as our Savior, bringing salvation. Uh, to take care of us in these terrible times. And he'll cut off uh, the power of Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. Uh, so he's talking here not just about his church, but those who surround it, who are in the promised land, who will put up a fight against us and be our enemies and try to destroy us. Satan knows exactly where God's people will be. Make no mistake about it. And he will speak peace to the heathen. You know, that's what the two witnesses are going to do. They're going to speak peace to the heathen. They're going to go and say, if you would repent, God would bless you and take care of you like he is those people in Zion that he's protecting from you. And they have wine and milk without money. They're taken care of. They have everything they could possibly need. They're, they've been healed. They aren't lame or deaf or blind anymore. they got feet like deer. And they have a wonderful culture and society going on. And you could have the same. So the message is going to be mainly of peace. And when they will not accept that, then is when the plagues and the troubles start. So the message is about the kingdom of God. The message is about worshiping God and entering into his rest and into his millennium, which the people in Zion will be a microcosm of, to point to as an example of what can be and shall be if you'll worship God. But if you don't, nearly all of you are going to die. But they won't accept it, so then they'll get plagues, and some of them will die then. Not all of them. There will be a lot left for the seven last plagues to take care of. 
But it's a message of peace, a message of repentance. Isn't that what God sent Jonah to do? Jonah, tell them to repent. And Jonah was afraid they would. He didn't want them destroyed. And they did. <laughs> they didn't stay repentant very long, but they did repent at that time. And all did that upset Jonah. So the two witnesses are going to do the same thing. They're going to preach peace and deliverance if you will repent. Then God's millennium will come and there will be peace on earth. But they will have accepted the mark of the beast. They will have accepted the new digital currency. They will be eating and drinking. They will still have TV and phones because they're going to rejoice when the two witnesses are killed and send messages and gifts around the world. So if, they're, if all communication has been cut off, they couldn't do that. But obviously the whole earth is going to rejoice and send gifts around the world when they finally kill those two pests. But they will speak peace. The world will choose the millennium, so-called, of Satan and the beast. They'll make the wrong choice. The whole world. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Rivers probably <coughs> the Colorado, which is the original Euphrates, I think. And between the seas means that the land which has been up thrust since this was written around Cedar City and in this area, uh, they even admit that this upthrust and all this volcanic activity has happened in the last 5,000 years. Now, how many places on earth do they say that? Most places, they say it's been 300 million, or half a billion, or 6 billion, or whatever they pull out of the air. But here they say it's been within the last 5,000 years. Now, when Christ was there, he was... Uh, they brought palm branches to wave. And when they built booths, they used palm and pine and other boughs. But there were palms there. Well, there aren't in Cedar City now. It's too high. But they're still in St. George. They're still in Hurricane. There's palm trees and fig trees right there that produce fruit. I pulled figs off of a tree in Hurricane that I recall. But... It has been up thrust. Look at the Hurricane Fault. You've got a huge fault line all the way up I-15 from Hurricane to Cedar City. That's all volcanic through there, and it is a major fault line. It's more obvious and more visible than the San Andreas Fault Line by far. There's been some tremendous activity there. And within the last 5,000 years, according to even scientists who don't believe in that, they believe in hundreds of millions of years, generally. And I think that it's happened within the last 2,000 since Israel, I mean, since uh, Christ was here. And the climate has changed somewhat because it's been raised to closer to 6,000 in elevation. I suspect it's going to be dropped again. Uh, wouldn't surprise me a bit. That may scare an awful lot of Mormons away from here. God knows what he's doing. 
So, we may have sea to sea again, with the promised land being the middle terrain between those seas. It sinks down so that the seas come back in, then Cedar City will be low enough to have palm trees again. That's simple. Verse 11, as for you also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. So, he is going to double in blessings what he's taken away in spewing and destroying the church. These people are going to sing and rejoice and have their fast turned into feasts of joy. By the blood of your covenant, whose blood is our covenant? Christ's blood is what we made the covenant with. That's the blood of the covenant for us. What does that blood do? It protects us from death, doesn't it? Does not it remove our sins so that we are eligible for eternal life? And even on a physical level, doesn't having he who shed his blood offer protection? His blood offers protection for those who will serve him wherever they are. Can you recall in your own life, and perhaps that of some of your friends and relatives, Christ intervening? I know many times in my life, I nearly died. Came real close a lot of times. Part of my own stupidity, yeah, and some of it wasn't. It was somebody else trying to get me. And you the same. Satan is after every one of us. And he'll kill anyone that God will allow him to kill. And he will prevent Satan and his demons where he decides to. And hopefully, we can come under that protection through our covenant of blood with Christ. So, what are we going to have here? We're going to have drought and famine and death all around us. Lake Powell is nearly empty. I drove over just a few days ago. Man, it's hard to find water out there anymore where it used to be full. You can walk around Lone Rock now, no water around it anywhere. Lake Mead is dropping rapidly. You know what's going to happen to Tucson and Phoenix and Los Angeles? There's going to be a hole in which there is no water. God is going to bring his people to Zion and give them plenty of water. You prisoners of hope, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. You know, I just read a place you'd never think would run out of water. Chicago sits right on Lake Michigan. Got the five great lakes all around it. Lots of rain, lots of snow. But Joliet, Illinois, which is a suburb basically of Chicago, right there near Lake Michigan, is the warehousing uh, headquarters for Walmart and several huge corporations have their main warehousing headquarters at Joliet. 
And the water that they have been using has been coming from underground aquifers way below Michigan, I mean the Lake Michigan, and they're running dry. They suck them dry. And they're not being replenished in order to for them to continue to have water. They've come up with a scheme to drain Lake Michigan. They want to build a 31-mile pipeline straight to the lake because there's no water left underground and start sucking it out of the lake. Now, Chicago's a big town, and Joliet's 150,000 or so, I think. This all this through Indiana, that whole area around the lakes, there's a lot of population. And now, they can't get it from underground, so they're going to suck the lakes dry. When God talks about famine, he names it and drought. They're already saying now that the southwestern U.S. is in the worst drought that has been since 1,200 years ago. And that's when they say the Anasazi, the ancient peoples, all got up and left here. Was Israel among them? We only have a few people left out here, or had a few people left, who are obviously a mixed people from black, yellow, and white. Israel always intermarried. When Abraham got to Jebus, or that which became Jerusalem, the Canaanite black people were already there. And Israel intermarried. The only way you can get a brown race is mixing yellow, black, and white. And you always come up with brown. That's just the way it works. So the people that were left here, the ancient Indians, were a mixture of those peoples. God only created to start with three races. Black, white, and yellow. Three sons of Noah. And the mixing has caused every other variation that we have since. And none is better than the other. All are human beings who will ultimately come under the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter what color our skin, our eyes, our hair, uh, or whatever. We are all candidates to be part of the kingdom of God. So in the long run, none of that matters. But what I'm telling you is the story of history. So Israel and the Canaanites, black people, were here before the Indians ever came. They are a result of inbreeding. Try to tell them that story, and they don't like it. <laughs> but that's the true story. All right, where are we here? So, he tells us to turn to the stronghold. Where is our place of refuge? What is the stronghold? Zion. Not Petra, it's Zion. That's the word he uses all through the Bible, is Zion. That's the place of safety that God has designated. Look it up. Go through your concordance, or whatever study aid you have, and look up place of refuge, look up Zion, and that's the one you'll find. It's all through the Bible. So that's the stronghold we turn to, you prisoners of hope. Now, we're prisoners, the slaves of Christ, are we not? We entered into slavery 
servants, slaves of God, voluntarily. We have also been slaves and prisoners of Babylon. And he tells us to come out of the prison of Babylon to the stronghold Zion. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. He says in Micah 4, we'll leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness. There he will redeem us, deliver us, and bless us, as we find through all the prophecies. So he says then, when I have bent Judah for me, and filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you as the sword of a mighty man. Now, he was talking directly to the end-time work from Isaiah 40, the former temple under Herbert Armstrong ends in 39. And 40 begins a new work. And there, he tells us in chapter 41, he will make the church a sharp threshing instrument. And those who leave Babylon and come to the desert, the wilderness, he says right after that, Micah 4, I will make you a sharp threshing instrument. So he is going to bend the bow of Ephraim. Most of the church is from this nation, Ephraim. Second most probably from Canada, and then a smattering from uh, Europe and Australia and South Africa, wherever Israel is. And many, many Gentiles among them. Because the church went around the world as a witness, or as a, not a witness, that's yet to come, went around the world as a calling work to make disciples. So when God did it, he did it just like he did in ancient times, or in the apostles' time. They went first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the apostles were basically set up to preach to Israel. And then God raised Paul up and made him ultimately as powerful as anyone to be the main one to go to the Gentiles. So God has made sure that all peoples and races will be included and he will draw his remnant even of the church from north, south, east, and west. So we're going to have peoples of all colors and all languages who come together to do a job. Build Jerusalem and the temple. And they'll have to be given the gift of tongues. Because a lot of them won't speak much English. If any. We've even, in worldwide years ago, sent people who could speak Italian to Italy and people who could speak Spanish to Mexico and South America. We tried to help those who did not speak much English be able to understand the gospel. They had plain truth in several different uh, languages, French as well. Uh, so, God has people all over that he's going to bring. Uh, against your sons, O Greece. Greece is a type in the Bible of uh, Gentile nations. So, those who come against God's church are all going to be Gentile in spirit. A lot of them may be Israelite by blood, but they're, is, but they're Gentiles in spirit. Now, isn't that what happened to ancient Israel? Christ married them when they had 
the Spirit of God with them and were trying to worship God. And then they went a whoring after other nations, and he made it very clear in his own words they didn't even look like Israelites anymore. He said, your mother and your father, the Hittite and the Amorite, I think were the two he used. You look like Amorites and Hittites to me, not like Israelites. I'm divorcing you. So even today, we have whored among the nations until this nation is as Babylonish and as whorish and as, as pagan as any Gentile nation. There's no difference between us and the other nations of the world. We're not an Israelite deacon to the world anymore. We're just as bad as anybody. In fact, we may be the worst. Where does the horrible TV and music and Internet come from that goes to the rest of the world? The most degenerate garbage that the world knows comes from right here. And I've traveled the world and seen it on their little black and white or barely color TVs in places where people were living in cardboard boxes. But they had American degeneracy piped in. He's going to work through those who will serve him and look more like God instead of like Satan. That's who he's going to use. And he'll make you as the sword of a mighty man. And the witnesses, yes, are going to send plagues and trouble on the same level as what they did in ancient Egypt and Israel. Verse 14, And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. So, who is going to give the power and the strength for a little people to overcome the hills and the mountains and the nations of this world? Didn't he tell uh, Zerubbabel right there in Zechariah 4, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. And that's what he's emphasizing right here. The power will come from God. He'll go forth. The Lord of hosts shall defend them. He says he'll be a wall of defense around them. And they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. And they shall drink and make a noise as through wine. And they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. Now, anciently, alcohol was not utilized by a lot of the common populace. They could not afford it. They didn't have the capacity to make it and drink it. There may have been a few stills here and there, but uh, anciently a lot of people didn't have money to drink. It was the rich, the wealthy, who could afford that. So when he stays here, he'll defend them, and they'll devour and subdue with sling stones or strength of the sling, God will give the power, in other words, like David, with his slingshot to Goliath. Uh, same analogy there. Probably won't be literal sling stones, but that's a type of something that can do great damage, as Goliath found out. No, he didn't find out. 
He never knew it. <laughs> he didn't know what hit him. But they'll drink and make noises through wine. People start drinking. Ah, that tastes good. Oh, that's good. And then they get happy, don't they? Well, sometimes. It's intended to bring a certain amount of joy. It, doesn't, it isn't supposed to make you mean and ornery. It's supposed to make you happy, taken in the right amounts, and joyful. And as noise through wine, it shall be filled like bowls, and as the corners of the altar. So, like having bowls of wine around. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Now you go to the book of Revelation, and it shows that the 144,000 are going to be given crowns. It shows in Zechariah 3 and 6 that uh, Joshua and several men there will be given crowns. So he's talking here of his righteous people, the flock of God, who will be given crowns and lifted up as an ensign upon his land. Now he tells us in Haggai, the last verse, that Zerubbabel is going to be an ensign to the whole world. An example or a flag or a standard of God around the world. And that's where the two witnesses are going, is around the world preaching the witness that God is God. So this is talking about that. The context hasn't changed from Zechariah 1 to here. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. He tells us that in Joel 2. He tells us that in several places in Isaiah, about how there in Isaiah 55, I think it is, that they'll have wine and milk without money. And here he uses wine and corn, and he uses that in Isaiah as well. So he's talking about this same period of time before Christ returns in glory, where he's going to come in a quieter, meeker, friendly, blessing, brother, friend way to his remnant church. And he will defend and protect and make us powerful machines of war against the governments and Satan. That's what's coming. So the book of Zechariah all the way through up till here is speaking of this time just ahead of us. It is premillennial. Don't make the mistake of thinking any of this in here is millennial. It's not. Now it has its application in the millennium in that the same conditions are going to exist for the whole world. But he's only going to give this to a select few ahead of time so that they can set an example as a light on a hill to the rest of the world. I hope we're getting that. I've said it a thousand times. But I hope we're beginning to really get the picture of what God is going to do here at the end for those who will be faithful and true to him and who will repent of our Laodiceanism, our lack of zeal, our lack of dedication, our selfishness, and our mingling with the world, 
and we're to come out of her, my people, and not be a partaker of her sins and her plagues. Revelation 18, 1-3. That's what he wants us to do. And he is looking now through what remains of the church to find 10% who have done just that. And they are to come barely ahead of the northern army, Jeremiah 50, and just ahead of the financial collapse, Zephaniah 2, the collapse is talked about in chapter 1. They're supposed to get here just in time delivery, if you will. Barely ahead of it. How long is that from now? don't know that I could tell you exactly, but it can't be very long the way I see things happening in the world and World War III is almost at our doorstep. And the destruction of our economy and the dollar with the demise of the SWIFT system is upon us as well. So this thing cannot be far off. And again, he said there will be people who saw worldwide at its best, the former temple, and compare it with the latter temple and how much better it will be spiritually, physically, and in every way. And man, are we getting old. So this has to happen pretty quick. I'll leave you with that thought.